Thank you for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson, produced by Surefire Local. Over 40,000 people have listened to Mark G. Richardson's podcast series specifically for home improvement businesses. You can subscribe to this podcast on any mobile phone using iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome to Remodeling Mastery. We're excited about the format of Remodeling Mastery in 2019. We're not only talking about some topics and issues that I think are really relevant that help you be better and healthier as a business leader, but also I'm integrating in some interviews, interviews from key leading kind of authorities in the remodeling industry, including Kermit Baker with Harvard, as well as Erica Taylor with Professional Remodeler. They're going to share kind of a pulse of what's going on out there, but also a little bit more about trends and insights you ought to be thinking about. Just taking a time out, I think, or driving along and thinking about these topics really make a big difference. I encourage everyone to subscribe rather than just wait till the email comes to you. By subscribing to this, which is certainly very easy and no cost, you also have an opportunity to have it automatically. So you can kind of look at it like a little educational library that you can pick and choose the particular topics that interest you the most. In addition to that, we're going to be doing this year a series of interviews of thought leaders, thought leaders that have gone from nothing to very substantial businesses. You know, one of the common questions I get both from folks I work directly with, but also when I'm out speaking, is how do I take my business? How do I grow my business? You know, I have a one, two, three million dollar business. How do I make it, take it to five? How do I take it to 10? Well, in these interviews, you're going to hear real live examples, real live folks that quite frankly started the same way maybe you did. However, now they have 10, 20, 30 million dollar businesses out there that are really pretty exciting. So today I want to talk about a topic that, you know, is kind of one of these things that it's about habits. It's like the glue that hooks a lot of people together. But I want to talk about it because as I look at the most successful folks out there and the folks that really, I think, have the best success habits, this is certainly one of them. And that's their ability to control their day rather than their day controlling them. You know, there really is kind of a gift of time out there. And I want to take just one or two little elements in the brief time that I have today to be able to touch on. And I encourage you to reach back and either go to Amazon, you can go to Surefire Local, and they'll give you free copies of my books. I wrote a book on controlling your day rather than your day controlling you, or time mastery. And if you ask them for it, they'll send it to you, and it goes into a lot more detail about the topic and the subject. However, I want to just touch on really one of the chapters that I really got into. Let me say before I get into it that we're not all time mastery equal. You know, some of you out there when it comes to time, quite frankly, are train wrecks, and you need to go back to the basics and kind of really think through, you know, how do I get into the blocking and tackling and the simply simpler. Some of you out there that are pretty good when it comes to mastering your time, but you need kind of some new techniques to really pick up uh, an extra 5 or 10% efficiencies, those kind of things. And then there's others out there, quite frankly, that have their black belt in 
time mastery that just want to move from a one degree black belt to a two or three and start to think about it in a different way because they already realize the importance of controlling and mastering time. So today I want to talk about a topic that is focused on being proactive versus reactive. And it's probably one of the more fundamental topics that you have to get into if you do want to take to your game to the next level. So the question as you think about kind of your day, your week, you know, what percentage of your time is proactive that you control versus reactive that others control? And I want you to really reflect on that. What percentage of your time is proactive that you control versus reactive that others control? Now, I encourage people to go back and take a little bit of inventory on this topic. But I think when you do, what I find the difference between the most successful and the moderately successful is in that blend. The most successful 80 to 85% of their time is proactive that they control, and generally 15 to 20% of the time is reactive to the real-world things that we get into. So take some time to think about that question. Now, so the real question is, at the end of the day, if the most successful are 85-15, then how do I move from 50-50, let's say, if that's your score? What you need to do, first and foremost, is incrementally build it up and move it from 50-50 to 55-45 to 60-40. you got to take baby steps to get there. So here's how I would encourage you to think about the baby steps to get there. In most businesses, you have three primary sources of reactive activities. One is your clients and customers. Two are your team members. And three is your family. Now, I'm not going to focus on the family element because I think the basic techniques apply, but let's just walk through just for a minute here and talk about uh, how you deal with, I think, this issue on the, on the client side. So as, as you think about your clients, what I want you to do is Monday morning when you start your day, I want you to think about those active clients that you're working with those clients that are either in uh, development or design or putting together some proposals on, those clients that are, you know, maybe they're just starting or in the middle of construction and maybe you have a few that are wrapping up. So let's just take, take just as purely as an example, let's say you've got 10 of those clients that are out there that fall into these different categories. So I want you to take about 20 minutes. It shouldn't take any more than that Monday morning. And I want you to proactively communicate to each one of those 10 clients. And in proactively communicating, you say to that client, hi, Mary, understand that we have a couple of questions. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about those. Can we set up a conference call for Tuesday at 11 o'clock? Okay, one example. Or you might be talking to John, you might send him a note, a text, a voicemail, whatever the right way to communicate. John, you know, I'm not sure kind of what the status of the doors are. However, I'm going to be out at your job site uh, Thursday morning, first thing, 8 o'clock. Why don't we jot that down as one of the topics that we want to address? So what you're doing with this proactiveness 
is number one, you're professional and you're going to be respected as a result of it. But you're also sending a message to them that you're controlling the process rather than reacting to them controlling you. Now, here's the outcome of doing that within the different forms of these 10 clients. Three of the clients are going to say fine, and they're just going to go along with whatever you suggest. Three or four of the clients are just going to feel better about it because, quite frankly, that you're more professional and on top of things, and they can focus on their own things. And then you're going to have two or three of the clients that, quite frankly, they're going to control you anyway. They're going to immediately respond later that day and and control you. So what I've just done is of these 10 active clients, I've reduced it down to only the three that I can't control and the seven that I can control, and now you've moved your 50-50 to 60-40. The second example of proactive and reactive activity happens, and the biggest source of this is with your team members or your coworkers. So we're constantly getting interrupted, we're constantly getting questions, we're constantly getting issues that are going on, flipping around in the business. I mean, it's a team sport, so you got to communicate. However, if in fact it's important for you to reduce the amount of reactive time, when you're interrupted by a team member, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's voicemail, whether it's a text or something, simply communicate back to them in a very empathetic and polite way And just let them know that you'd love to address their issue, but can you do it at 1 o'clock today, 2 o'clock today? Pick a time that you're going to actually connect back to them or give them the realistic expectation rather than just reacting to their question and their issue. Now, again, of those 10 that are going to happen out there, you're going to have three or four that are going to say, fine, that will work for me. You're going to have probably three that it's a fire that needs to be put out. You're going to need to deal with it anyway. And then mysteriously on three or four of them, it's going to go away. They're going to figure it out on their own. It's not going to be necessary because I think sometimes people get into the habits of interrupting and asking questions when they don't really need to. They can go a little bit deeper. But at the end of the day, what they're doing to you is increasing the reactive activity. You tend to be a little bit more frustrated and certainly are not looking at the answers and solutions in as clear of a way. So those are a couple of very specific techniques that you can focus on if, in fact, you have a higher percentage of reactivity and you want to move it to be more proactive. And I share this because it's really the, fu- the foundation for being more masterful at time. If you cannot have your handle and have your head around the amount of reactive t- activity, it's going to be very hard moving forward for those frustrations and for you to dramatically improve. So I encourage you to hang tight here. We're going to get into the balance of our, our uh, podcast series, and I'm excited for this new format, and hopefully give us some feedback and certainly reach back to my friends at Surefire Local who are leaders in digital marketing that can help you certainly take your business to the next level. Take care, everyone. I want to thank everybody for listening to Remodeling Mastery. But just as much, I want to thank those that support this particular series. Now, first and foremost, I want to encourage you not just to listen, but to subscribe. 
And for those people that subscribe to this podcast or actually reach out to my producers, Surefire, a leading digital marketing organization, you'll actually receive a copy of one of my books that will help you take your business to the next level. This podcast series is actually supported by Professional Remodeler. Professional Remodeler is committed to help you understand and crack the code on your business. So I encourage you to try to spend the time reading the magazine and reach out to them and be a little bit more of a voice in the industry. I also encourage you to get involved, get engaged. The National Association of Remodeling Industry, NERI, is a wonderful organization that I've been involved with with most of my career and actually had so many opportunities as a result of that. And lastly, certainly, reach out to my friends at Surefire Local that'll be able to help you with your business. Welcome back. I'm Mark Richardson. And in this segment of Remodeling Mastery, we're going to be talking about the pulse of what's happening out there, but also we're going to kind of stretch ourselves a little bit and look out into the future. Uh, My guest today, Kermit Baker, who's the chief economist for the American Institute of Architects, as well as uh, heads up Harvard's Remodeling Futures program, uh, not only looks at kind of the rearview mirror, as we talked about on earlier podcasts, but also kind of is carefully watching kind of the here and now and today. But today I've asked Kermit to kind of look out kind of at the horizon a little bit, because I think that as you start to position your business for the future, I think knowing what those future factors are are going to be critical, but also, you know, listening to kind of the pulse of what experts are saying. So welcome, Kermit, and I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Mark, it's great to be with you today. Great. So I know that, you know, a big part of your time and energy is kind of looking at a lot of data, facts and figures, looking at some of the key leading indicators that are out there. But uh, let's kind of try to stretch and look a little bit further out. Let's look out beyond 2019. And if we can imagine, you know, we're in whatever, uh, 2020. And what might we be looking at? And I know it's a little sketchy, but I'm going to ask you at least to at least give us your best predictions of what might be out there. Well, you know, I think it is interesting and helpful, Mark, to kind of look beyond uh, the short-term trends and seeing kind of how society's changing, how the economy's changing, how, you know, how people are changing demographics and things like that to get a sense as to where the home improvement market might be headed. And, and, and let me start with, with one thing is, is kind of this relationship between new home building and, and remodeling activity. Uh, you know, we tend to think those two move together. Housing market strong, remodeling market strong. Um, and, and what we've seen really over the past six or eight years is kind of a divergence there. We've seen a really relatively weak uh, single-family construction market, homeowner market, and a relatively strong home improvement market. And, and, and I think what, what we're seeing here is that home, home improvement activity is beginning to displace uh, uh, construction activity. Um, now, part of this may be temporary. There were a lot of homes that were really not maintained very well during the last recession. There were a lot of homes that were owner-occupied homes that were convinced uh, that were uh, changed over to to rental units. They were converted to rental units because 
uh, they were foreclosed or, or whatever else. Uh, but what we've been seeing in recent years is sort of a lot of these homes that were vacant or renter-occupied come back to the owner-occupied stock um, and, and doing that in a way to, to, to really perk up the home improvement, uh, home improvement market. We've seen really more emphasis on that. And I think with a slower growing population, we're going to continue to see more emphasis on home improvement activity than we've seen on new construction. Now, you brought up uh, something that really hit a nerve for me, and that's some of the society changes that we might see in 2020 and beyond. And I know one of the key things that you look at is the demographics and how the baby boomers and the Generation X and millennials, how that kind of wave is moving through. Uh, maybe you can comment a little bit on, on that because, you know, the reality is, is that if, if all of a sudden the potential uh, opportunities out there are changed because of the demographic and maybe something for people to pay attention to. Very, very fundamental, Mark, I think. And, and, and unfortunately, I think in a few minutes we can't do justice to that. But let me, let, me, let me start with one here, which I think is really pretty fundamental, and that's the aging of our population. And a lot of that is really baby boomers kind of moving into the retirement years and how they're making housing and home improvement decisions uh, differently. Um, you know, we do have a, a big population, a very large segment of our population uh, that, that's uh, moving into ages where their needs are going to change, their housing needs are going to change, they're going to be a little less mobile, they're going to, you know, have a little more difficulty uh, sort of getting around their home. And so we really need a, a massive effort in terms of making these homes more accessible. But I think related to that, we've seen a, um, a, a big increase in, in, in what's called multi-generational households. This is households where, you know, two, three generations are living together. These are not, you know, a, a parents with younger children, but it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's parents that may be caring for their aging parents. It's, uh, it's parents that may be, that may see their, uh, you know, 25-year-old son, uh, daughter-in-law and young child moving back in because of uh, problems that they've had kind of navigating the economy. And, and, and it's causing a lot of shifts in terms of what the space needs are for households and kind of how they're using their home and, and, and therefore how they want to modify uh, um, you know, the, the use of space within their home. You know, one of the things we oftentimes are hearing about, at least in terms of business speak and, and, and I think it really affects us on a day-to-day -day basis is this, this notion of some of the disruptors that are out there, some of the things that, you know, are causing homeowners, for example, to buy differently in the future or how the channel is moving through in terms of products as they're, you know, getting out to the job site, changing based on these disruptors. Maybe you can just touch on you know, a couple of the disruptor, disruptors that that you think are at least out there that people ought to be, you know, at least aware of and paying more attention to. Yeah, I think one of those is really how the um, uh, how the overall home improvement industry is is likely to be structured moving forward. It's a, you know, we we, we look at it at home improvement uh, market is really probably the most fragmented industry in 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 our economy. Uh, 
you know, two-thirds of, of firms serving the home improvement industry have no employees on payroll. They're basically self-employed ind individuals. Uh, if you're a half a million or a million dollar uh, um, gross revenue home improvement uh, uh, contract, you're, you're, you're in the top you know, 500 or 1,000 nationally, uh, they're just, just, just very, very small. And I think that really encourages sort of what, you know, the phenomenon you've been talking about are having a new business model come in, something where uh, scale is more important, something where uh, your reputation, uh, brand awareness, uh, other things like that are are more critical to the consumer, and and I think we will see that moving forward. We're going to see uh, the, the 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 sort of the neighborhood word of mouth model uh, that most home improvement contractors operate under change to something that does have uh, you know more of a, a regional or national scale and and a, a different way of really uh, of really running that business. Now, you brought up about this fragmentation and, you know, kind of in, at least in the past, lack of consolidation of remodeling businesses and activities. Do you think with kind of the infusion of the monies into the remodeling industry, with the change in the, how remodeling businesses are done, uh, is, is your prediction that we're going to see a lot more consolidation or is it going to continue to be extremely fragmented? That's the you know $64,000 question. I think there's been a lot of attempts to consolidate this industry, um, most of them largely unsuccessful. And I think you know the reason is that housing markets are very local. Uh, building codes, uh, uh, other sorts of things are, are are you know have a very local uh, character to them, and, it, and therefore it's hard to. To, to really scale those operations. But I do think in this age of advanced technology, uh, someone is going to crack the code on that, and, and, and we are going to see uh, more regional and national players begin to uh, begin to emerge. I think there's just much more interest in that uh, on the part of consumers. Do I, you know, I, I like my local contractor, but he may go out of business or she may go out of business next year, and if I have a problem with my project, who do I talk to? You'd much rather have, I think, a national player that stood behind that work and, and, and was there to resolve problems as they emerge over coming years. Excellent. Well, again, Kermit, I want to thank you for joining us today. I think, uh, while again, I, I, I certainly respect the fact that you don't have a crystal ball, but you, you're, you're using your insights and your data and certainly your ear to the ground to, you know, help us really understand what the future might look like. And uh, again, thank you for joining us today and uh, look forward to having you back again and, and uh, you know, going back and see whether some of those predictions that we've been talking about came true. Mark, it's, be, it's been good being with you and, and, and with your listeners today. Would you like to learn about the best ways to position your home improvement business for success in 2019? Get a free copy of Mark's best-selling book, Fit to Grow, the 12 business themes for growth. You can do so by emailing marketing at surefirelocal.com or calling or texting 571-327-3391. Welcome back to Remodeling Mastery. In this segment, I'm going to be doing a deep dive interview with one of the certainly thought leaders in the remodeling industry, Todd Jackson, and I'll introduce him in a minute, but I want to encourage the listeners to actually not only listen to kind of an interesting 
person and, and, and certainly a uh, motivational and insightful story. But I also want you to kind of compare your path, your path in terms of your journey as a remodeler or remodeling owner uh, as it relates to Todd's. So, Todd, welcome to our show today, and I, I, I want to go ahead and introduce you. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, for having me on today. Great. So Todd Jackson is a, a remodeling business, uh, Jackson Design Build Remodeling, and they're in Southern California in the San Diego area. Uh, Todd uh, started the business about, he'll share a little bit more about that in detail in a minute, but started the business about 15 or 20 years ago and has grown the business to over a $20 million design build business. And uh, so today we're going to talk about the business. We're going to talk about, you know, some of the insights that Todd has certainly uh, been able to uh, uh, learn as a result of this kind of successful path. But we're also going to get into some of those kind of uh, mistakes and some of those potholes and some of those lessons learned that he certainly had. So with all that being said, Todd, why don't you share the, the Jackson design build story? You got it. <clears throat> Thanks, Mark, again. Hey, um, so currently we're in San Diego, California, Jackson Design and Modeling. We actually have three um, kind of different divisions. Jackson Design, it does large-scale um, remodels where we need an architect and more interior designers. We have Home Expressions by JDR that is more kitchen and bath-based. We're no structural, just more gut and replace. And then um, we are launching our new luxury home division um, next year. And we currently do build a few new homes a year, but really want to try and focus that to where maybe we can get that up to five or six. Um, we are a design build firm. And one of the things that I think is slightly different um, about us is that really we are probably more of an architectural company that builds versus maybe a contractor that has a designer or two. Our design staff is a, um, entails about, I think I have three licensed architects. Um, and so the architectural department, more the structural side, has about eight employees. And my interior design side is close to 20-ish. And so really, we are a little bit more design focused. Um, I was blessed to actually, I started the company back in 1989 when I was 20. Um, it's funny as I got out of high school and had my dad was always one of those guys that had all the tools in the garage and really um, um, he wasn't in the business, but he was a gunsmith and really kind of taught us boys how to kind of use our hands. And I got out of um, high school, found some guys that were looking for an apprentice. So went to college at night and then um, during the day I was an apprentice for a um, this company, and I jokingly always say that I was the um, oldest um, three-year-old I've ever known um, because I, <laughs> I, I wide, why this, why this, why that, you know, um, and I can remember being paid four bucks an hour, but man, I was like determined to make, for it to be taught five or six things a day, and that was the goal, you know, I, I didn't mind trading the low labor for the knowledge, and um over the period of time, then we used to install windows and doors, kind of moved to the kitchen and bath side 
um, years ago when Home Depot Expo, kind of their higher end kitchen bath stuff, we used to be an installer. And there was actually a pivotal point in my life where we got an opportunity to work with more interior designers and um, and really, I would say, committed to the design build side maybe 18 years ago. So um, we we're now, coming one up of the here. Things, Todd, you said uh, something that I thought that I want to kind of clarify because I think it's, it is an important distinction because a lot of people toss around you know, the term design build, and then they think that, okay, well, that there's really one definition. But the reality is, you know, there's builders that decide that they want to control the process and design. There's architects that uh, say, gosh, the builders make all the money, therefore we want to build. And then there's kind of what I would call more the true design build that, you know, that you tend to be, and that is you know, a real integration of the two. Maybe you can just expand on that because, you know, reality is, you know, design build is not a credential. And I think by, you know, taking at least or thinking about your model of what you've done with design build, I think it helps, you know, to communicate to certainly the listeners a little bit more about, you know, what they're thinking about. Yeah. And I think the design build process for me, it is a process, right? And you can do that with internal um, staff and you can do that with external staff. But ultimately what the purpose of that is, is that you have people, architect, interior design, and contractor, say, all um, with different backgrounds and different skill levels coming together on the front side, right? And really gathering as much information as you can from those particular clients. And... I find for us, um, it does a number of different things. It allows us to really get a little bit more in depth with the um, the understanding of what the client wants. Um, I think it gives us the ability to bring a lot more creativity and really to head off a lot of those different mistakes on um, that you would typically um, incur as the process goes through. And um, make it an easier ride for really everybody. You know, something else you brought up, which I think is another important distinction that maybe you can expand on. And that is, you know, with, you know, an accounting firm or a law firm or a medical practice, you know, for the most part, these are these are businesses that are designed and then executed. Yes, of course, you learn things along the way. But. With most remodeling firms, and I think listening to your, you know, your 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 early story here, uh, you know, it's more a product of how you evolve than necessarily, you know, when you're, you know, whatever a teenager or in night school, uh, designing what you thought this business would be. Maybe you can touch on kind of a little bit more that evolution or a little bit more that that path, you know, including kind of you know, that Home Depot experience and what you learned from that and so on? Well, <clears throat> when we did work at, um, with Home Depot, it's funny is that we got that opportunity to work with more interior designers and really look at how they were actually designing over all the kitchens and the baths. And the, the fact is, how do you integrate that with then um, the architectural? And it's funny is that when we really started the design build, our side is that at least in our market, most of the time the contractors were using a draftsperson, and 
then their cabinet shop would fit, come back in after the job was sold and fill that, you know, the cabinetry um, void. And then the client, yes, uh, the contractor would have specialists. So go see Susie at the tile store and Janet at the granite store. Not really um, encompass, you know, tying all those loose ends up. When I first really decided, hey, we're going to be design build, I did hire a, my first, um, and at that time we had a drafts person. And I would say three months later, we did bring in a new interior designer. And at that time, we actually promoted it as our kind of our personal shopper. And she typically worked with only our clients once they were sold, and then they would be bring her in and really work on more of the finishes. And, right. Um, yeah, and I see a lot of you know contractors maybe doing that, really, really using the person as a quote, uh, quote unquote, maybe a, a design project manager kind of thing. So you you obviously been done doing this business for quite a while, and one of the areas that I know that you've kind of really focused on as a differentiator is how do you kind of integrate kind of a whole team together in a process to be able to very quickly move the client at least from the point of, you know, where they're first meeting you to the point that they're, you know, more committed. Maybe you can talk about that, you know, some of those lessons learned about speed and lessons learned about, you know, assembling kind of a little army, so to speak, to really attack the client's projects. Yeah. And our, our process is more of where we have, um, you know, you have a team. Um, that consists of the contractor, architect, and a uh, um, interior designer. And say the contractor being, um, you know, are one of our salespeople, but somebody has more of this structural, you know, based knowledge. Um, and I think for us, I think a lot of times what would happen is is that maybe a salesperson would go out, meet the clients, gather the information. That information is then come back and relayed to maybe the design team. And then the salesperson meets again with the client, gets more, shows the designs, gets more information, goes back, has the design team on the backside. So they don't, client doesn't really interact a whole, whole lot with the designer. Um, or the reverse is that the salesperson sells it, then the interior, the, the design team comes in, they, you know, get in a design frenzy, design this million dollar project. Unfortunately, a client has a three hundred thousand dollar budget, right? It could go, it can go either way. So, in the first scenario, I think you're losing some information in the translation because we all yep. absorb information differently, right? And and so for us, we just bring everybody who's you know going to participate in that process all um, on um, really at the front. So, salesperson is going to go out meet with the client, sell the um, the Jackson experience, what the clients can expect, charge a design fee, and then the team mobilizes. So three people all get together and really work with that client, gather the information. Um, the three people then get come back, develop a um, an idea, different ideas, and it's really um, it's really a more of a very team approach where hey, everybody has an idea. Let's just throw everything out there, some different options. What could we do, you know? And so I think the nice thing about that, it's really a little bit more thought through when you're actually presenting um, to the client. And it's just not from one, you know, 
one person's experiences or, or knowledge base. Now, clearly, I think, Todd, what you've just described sounds really, really appealing to the client. It also sounds like, oh, my God, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And I wonder how you know, beneficial it is to the business. So share with you know, our, our, our listeners some of the things you've learned in terms of how this assemblage of the team really benefits the business. Well, I think it does a number of different things. One is, um, I mean, we're known in the San Diego area as the, you know, if you want real design, this is the remodel you have to come to, right? Um, that next level design. And so that's really helped separate us from yep. um, some of our uh, other competitors, right? And so that that's a definite benefit. The other thing is I think it allows people to really for us to be a lot more organized than um, than maybe where it's kind of only um, sporadic. Um, yep. Done. And so to give you an idea, right? I don't I don't know what the true real number is, but I believe um, it's safe to say that the average um, price cost of a, a project from the time that you start the project to the time that you complete the project historically across the nation will probably be about 25%. Does that sound reasonable? Yep. Okay, in change orders and that kind of stuff. My, um, if you average uh, my entire, all my projects, you know, um, this year, you know, 20 cents in plus million, this year, um, 4%. And so what does 4% in change orders do? And most of those are client enhancements. A you know, those clients are happy, right? They haven't been bled all the way through their entire project. Um, it's more organized. So I'm not, you know, having to put together 15, 20 different change orders throughout the project and then get that information, you know, uh, disseminated throughout um, the entire company out to the field staff, right? It historically allows us to be a lot more organized. So when we go to our vendors, they know what to expect. They know in this system, this is exactly what the information that I'm dealing with. And, and so they, um, you know, we in a today where it is so difficult to get subcontractors to your job site, um, people want to go where they are, um, where a company's most organized. And if I can have less headaches, at the Jackson jobs and just know I can get in and get the job done. Um, that's where I want to show up. So that's another valuable. Got it. So as you reflect, obviously you've had a tremendous amount of success in, in terms of growth, in terms of reputation, in terms of award winning, you know, needless to say, I think we all have as owners and certainly leaders in the industry, you know, some scars and bruises, some potholes that you've stepped in, some mistakes, you know, for the benefit of our, you know, our listeners, you know, what have been a couple of mistakes that, you know, you've had as you reflected back that you said, well, that was a mistake. Um, I've got a, a, a couple of them. One is, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, 
not listening to, um, not getting enough advice, right? So I think a couple of things that I probably would have done um, that um, I didn't do soon enough, and I have done that now, is if I was starting a business, I would have um, got more people who and found a mentor, somebody that I could ask, somebody that I could trust, that he was also helping, you know, me, guide me to make the good decisions and um, maybe not so much risk or some risk, that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made um, was back in the back in the downturn in 2007-ish. Um, in 2005, I had saved all my shekels and bought a big, about an 8,000 square foot building. At the time, I was only in half, but we were growing by leaps and bounds, and the tenant wanted out, and they paid me $100,000 to get out of the rest of their lease. So we took over the building, built out one side for all the offices, moved everybody over, put the entire showroom in, and we were ready for March of 2008. So we were like having a red Corvette, no gasoline. Uh, perfect. Exactly. Perfect timing. You got it. But one of the difference is, is that I had, um, I, you know, I do my best to try and put all my shekels away and just keep them right. Store them for a later date. And I can remember having a, um, the CPA asking, you know, why do you have so much cash in the bank? What do you need? You know, what do you have all this, you know, so much dollars. And when we talked about the strategy of building out the building. He goes, no, nah, man, I would just pay cash. You have plenty of it. Don't worry about it, right? And whereas I could have walked into a bank and they would have given me, you know, a $600,000 loan, no problem. And um, I could have paid that thing off, you know, even if I got a five-year, six-year um, loan on that, I could have paid a little bit of interest, but, you know, I would have still had my cash. Right. And um, what would I have done in 2008, 9, and 10 with, you know, over a half a million dollars extra in my bank, right? And probably like a lot of contractors, I would have done this thing called sleep, right? <laughs> that would, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know. Right. So I think that's kind of one of those things. I think you really got to strategize and think of what's going to happen um, in the future, right? And, right. And maybe no, those are important bits of advice. I think yeah. having, you know, having a coach, having advice, whether it's a, you know, a, a local business person or whether it's someone who's been there, done it. And and I think to your point about cash is right on target. Is that yeah. you know you gotta you gotta maintain a, that that kind of war chest for you know for a rainy day. So let let, let me ask you this, Todd. You know, one of the classic kind of things that people, you know, especially the smaller ones, they see what you've been able to accomplish and say, oh, you know, Todd's been, you know, he's got a lucky guy. He's been able to accomplish all this stuff or, you know, he must have, you know, had some advantages that others had. You know, how much of this is more about, you know, your grit and your mindset versus kind of being in the right place at the right time and being a little bit lucky? You know, um, it's funny. My grandmother used to have this sign above her door, and I used to love it. I'd go over there, and you'd go in and out of the kitchen, and you look at the sign. And one of the things that it said is that the harder I work, the luckier I get. 
and it's just kind of one of those things that got brought up in, you know, great German grandmother, right? Right. And um, I think that um, it's a combination. I mean, I think you just have to know that you have to continue to work and every day, right? I mean, we're very blessed to have um, a successful company and surround myself with great people. Um, and every day I come to work. And I come to work not because necessarily I have to be here um, every single day, right? Um, but I love what I do. And I do have to say is that, um, you know, what do you hard work it, What's that? What do you love about it? Man, you know, um, I love working with clients, right? I love to be able to um, change, a, you know, a client, not only their, their lifestyle, the house, right? But really change, um, you know, how they're going to live in it. I, as a owner, um, I really love now really developing people into whether we bring a young person out of um, college. I mean, we have designers that we brought out of college for, with design degrees, made them assistants, then junior designers, now senior designers. And, you know, they're senior, they are award-winning designers that got, you know, an article in Architectural Digest. I mean, we're even wow. clients that, you know, and I think for, and, and, you know, you take, you know, whether it's carpenters that you bring in-house and then they, you know, move them all the way up to project managers and, um, and you develop designers into managers and you develop managers into a leadership team. I think um, that right there is really um, something that, you know, at the end of the day, when I look back, I want to I want to be known for somebody who has touched people, right, changed people's lives, um, and help people along the way. And I think um, my, my business gives me that opportunity. Well, Todd, I think that's a good kind of segue to kind of end the conversation. And I think that you know, I think what you found, and I think other successful remodelers found. You may get into it because of the sticks and bricks. You may even be fulfilled by doing some good things and good projects. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's more about the people. It's more about growing and developing people more than it is just projects. And I think, uh, you know, I congratulate you for all your success and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And um, I wish you the best. Thank you, Todd. Speak to you soon. If you liked what you've heard, take a moment to subscribe to Remodeling Mastery on your phone using your favorite podcast app. It's available in all the major apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Go ahead and post in the comments what you learned and any questions you have for Mark, and he may answer them on an upcoming episode. Thank you again for listening to Remodeling Mastery by Mark G. Richardson.